Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. From a very young age, my guest today dreamed of producing the world's first full-length computer-animated movie, an ambition I can reasonably say was shared by no one else in the world 50 years ago. In 1972, he earned a PhD in computer science before devoting decades of his life to digital innovation and helping develop the technology that would ultimately fulfill his dream. He forged a partnership with Star Wars director George Lucas before founding Pixar Animation with Steve Jobs and John Lasseter. And 23 years after earning his doctorate and nearly a decade after launching Pixar, the movie Toy Story changed animation forever. In his 2014 New York Times bestselling book, Creativity, Inc., Ed Catmull chronicled the story of Pixar from its early days when Steve Jobs invested $10 million to spin it off from Lucasfilm to its acquisition by the Walt Disney Company for $7.4 billion. I read Creativity, Inc. when it first came out, long before I launched this podcast. And I was struck by the fact that Catmull wasn't just on the cutting edge of technology. He was a masterful CEO and leader. And I still have the pages of notes that I took from the book, which highlights why Toy Story and the 25 movies that followed were so successful. The essential ingredient was the unique environment that Catmull and his colleagues built at Pixar, where an emphasis on candor, collaboration, and a deep belief in human potential led to movie-making magnificence. Pixar, of course, went on to dominate the world of animation, giving us such beloved films as Finding Nemo and The Incredibles, Up, Ratatouille, Inside Out, and racked up 18 Academy Awards in the process. Recently, Ed Catmull produced a second edition of Creativity, Inc. that Fast Company Magazine says, quote, might be the most thoughtful management book ever, unquote and I am thrilled that he agreed to come join us to discuss it. Well, some of you may be out for a run or listening to the podcast while driving. If you can grab a pen and paper to take some notes, I highly encourage it. In our conversation, we explore how Ed and his team introduced psychological safety long before it was a thing as a means to ensuring the film directors receive critical yet caring feedback on their work and how pursuing excellence as an organizational value led to the production of so many remarkable movies, animated or otherwise. But Ed shares many other truly uncommon leadership practices and insights that you're gonna really wanna consider and perhaps adopt. Perhaps no one on the planet spent more years working with Steve Jobs than Ed did. And later in the podcast, we explore how Jobs evolved as a leader and largely trusted his Pixar team to produce the great work he himself dreamed of. Before he retired in 2019, Ed Catmull was also the president of Disney Animation and therefore was the leader of two of the most innovative companies on the planet. It is a profound honor to introduce him to you now. Welcome to the podcast, Ed Catmull. We were just having a conversation and I felt like I was cheating my audience here by having any conversation with you before I started recording. But I wanna get into the thing that's been in the back of my mind as I read your book and as I was preparing for this, which is that you have an untraditional background. You have an undergraduate degree in physics, you have a PhD in computer sciences, and with 
all the evidence pointing to the fact that you were quite an excellent leader. I'm wondering two things. How did you make yourself a great leader? Like, what were the steps that you took? What were the key learnings? And how did you get to be successful in managing a wildly creative company when that wasn't your background either? Well, the first thing on graduating was just to learn a lot from what I was seeing around me, just observing other companies, seeing things I liked or that I didn't like, and then trying to ask the question, why? And always trying to dive deeper into why is this happening? How do people feel about it? And how do people feel about their work? And what can I see? When I got to Lucasfilm, I was running this group, but I intended just to run the group well based on what I learned in the past. I realized as I transitioned into Lucasfilm that the theories that I had New York Tech before, about half were right and half were a crock. And at that time, I figured out that while I'm going to keep doing the things that were right, that going forward, my new theories were likely going to have about the same percentage of being right and not working. Not because I knew exactly what the number was, I don't, but I felt it was important to believe that I was wrong more than I thought I was going to be. Why is that important? In other words, how did that help you? Well, I believe that it helped in that I could then look at issues or problems and say that, well, I may be missing something here. And I think it was very important to me was to approach meetings or relationship with people, understanding that they could see things that I don't see. And I still believe this is one of the most important things as a manager is to acknowledge that I don't have a full vision and that I'm not actually expected to have a full vision. I'm expected to listen and to understand. I would say the people I work with are mature, they're adult, they disagree about a number of things going on in the company, and they don't expect that their view is always going to be accepted, but they do want to be listened to. So the result was a style in which if people had a problem, and even if I knew ahead of time that their particular solution wasn't going to work, it was critical that I listened to what they said, and even though they knew in general that I wouldn't necessarily take their suggestion, just the fact that I listened to them made it okay for them. I love this. I love what's inherent in this. One is curiosity. So you start off with the premise that I don't have the full vision, which is, I think, an insight a lot of people don't realize. We think we have the whole picture all the time, and of course we don't. And so in certain cases, you said in your book that people, when they interacted with you, they would see you not as Ed, but as the CEO, and that that creates a wall that prevents people from feeling that they can share everything and be candid with you because of any career repercussions and so forth. Nevertheless, what your response to that was to say, well, if I don't have the full vision, then I can learn from people. And so I'm going to put myself in a position of believing two things. One is that I'm not always right and probably half the time I'm wrong. So I'm open to being persuaded. And in order to accomplish that, I want to listen to people and have them tell me exactly what's on their minds to have a safe environment in order to do that, knowing that I still may not make a decision that's in their favor, but at least they have their day in court. 
I'm taking this from what you just said, but I'm also taking it from your book. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. It's frankly more important for them to feel they were listened to than they were right. That's really enlightened. Do you realize that? The whole package of what you just described right out of the gate is very enlightened. How did you get there? Well, I learned it slowly. What some people don't realize is that I was the president of Pixar three times, which meant that twice I was unmade the president. Really? Yes, because when we started, I was the president, but I didn't actually know enough. And so Steve Jobs had this conversation. It was very difficult for me for him to say, you really aren't ready yet. So he made me the chairman and CTO or something like that. It was some kind of make-believe thing. But he brought in somebody else who was a great guy. And that's when we were manufacturing. And then we got out of that business. And so that person left. And so Steve said, okay, you learn more. So now you're the president again. <laughs> so now I was the president the second time. And now we were getting to the point we got the contract to make a film for Disney. And at the end of this period of time, when our film came out, Steve wanted to take the company public. And he said, well, you know, you don't really have enough knowledge or experience to be the CEO of a public company. So now I was no longer the, the president of Pixar anymore. And that was, again, difficult. But I also knew that he was right. I didn't know enough. Then we went forward for another like year or two. But I was learning as we went along the way, figuring out not only how to work with people, but also how to work with Steve at the time, too. And then at some point, he came back and said, OK, he announced it to the company that I was the president of Pixar. This would be the third time. Although, interestingly enough, everybody thought I was president all along. They didn't even know that I wasn't the president. <laughs> But it was like, okay, it's like to go through the pain and accept that I didn't know certain things, but I wasn't going to give up on what I wanted to do, or I didn't want to give up on learning. So I just sort of toughed it out and figured, okay, message taken. So I had to learn all along. So this was a long, slow process of learning both how to lead, but also continuing something which I started right from graduate school, which was to observe to listen, to realize that I didn't see everything and come up with ways of trying to address it. And it was that long, slow process and the willingness to go through it, which changed me. And also I found dealing with the issues of the emotion, how people think, how they feel was really interesting. You know, helping people and guiding people, it's not just the job, it's also it's a really interesting one and you're helping people that you're working with along the way. You know, it's just it's hard to describe, but that was the process. So dig into that a little bit, because you just said something that's sort of the, without knowing, it's sort of the foundational idea of this podcast, which is that human beings aren't anywhere near as rational as we've been taught and believe, and that feelings and emotions drive behavior a bunch of the time. So you seem to have understood that. And how did you identify that? And what was your approach to integrating that understanding into your leadership practices? Well, I think that part of it, I mean, frankly, I always knew that emotion had a much stronger impact in our work than most people were acknowledging. I was very aware that, like the metaphor of Dr. Spock 
Spock being the rational one and Kirk being the emotional one was actually not true. What gives people the ability to be rational is to have a strong emotional core. And if one just thinks that we're rational beings without the emotional core, it's just wrong. It's not the way our brains work. It's not the way we do work. But it's a tough problem for people. And so at Pixar, we work very hard to make sure that we're putting the emotional core at the basis of what we do. So when we make a movie, for instance, we don't look for scripts to make in the movies. What we're looking for is what are people passionate about? What's going to make a movie good is that at its heart, people have something important that they want to say. That's the point you start from. Then you can build around that. Can you give me an example? This is fascinating. Well, in the case of new movies coming up with a new idea, we'll pick somebody who we think can direct. And it's a tough position for them to be in. But what we ask them to do is to come up with three ideas for a film. And they come up with it. They've got one or two people to assist them in this process. The reason we say three ideas is that if you're trying to do something new, you can get stuck and you can bang your head against the wall. But if we say come up with three ideas, then as soon as you get stuck, you can then switch to a different idea. And we have to do this for roughly a year. And then at the end of the year, they pitch their three story ideas to the creative leaders of the company. And the same thing happens every time. It's very fascinating because when they pitch their three ideas, and there's about a half hour each for these ideas, when they pitch them, they start off by saying, I love all of these ideas equally, so it doesn't matter to me which one you pick. Now, when they leave this meeting, the discussion we have is not which idea is best. Our discussion is, which one do they really want to do? Now, they've all watched this process, but they can't help but approach it this way. It's like they're also trying to protect themselves because, frankly, they're vulnerable. Of course. So you have to accept the vulnerability of people. And in some cases, it's a little tricky, but I think we've always gotten it right. But there were times also when it was actually pretty obvious. So one of our recent movies was Coco. It's one of my favorite movies at Pixar, which is about the Mexican Day of the Dead. But Lee Unkrich, who had directed Toy Story 3, pitched his three ideas. And these are in these rectangular rooms. And so we can only have a storyboard on one side. So that's one pitch. The other long wall is the other pitch. Then we go to the other room. And so you get the first pitch. It's a good idea. Second pitch. It's a good idea. So we walk into the third, the other room, and the ceiling, the walls, the table are all decorated with Mexican artwork. Mm -hmm. So without a word being said, telegraphing, we all know which movie we're going to make. But your inclination is to do something that we don't often do in workplaces, which is you're deferring to the person who's presenting three ideas to you and leaning into the one that you think they're most passionate about. So how many times did they come in and of the three, they were passionate about, let's say in the example that you just get a, gave of Coco, that you went into that room, you saw the decoration, everybody in the room intuited that this is the one they love and really want to make. But what would happen if you didn't like that one? 
Like if you like number two and other people like number one, would you just defer to number three just because of the passion? How did that go down? Oh, absolutely. We went for the passion because the fact is with every one of these, the final movie looks almost nothing like the original pitch. They changed radically. So the notion that, okay, this is the movie we want to make doesn't make sense from our point of view in any case. And it's only if the person has the passion that they're going to put everything into making it work. So in the case of Ratatouille, for instance, that's a movie where it's not obvious at all that you've got something which you can make a movie out of it. But that's the one that he wanted to do. And so that ended up being it was a long, tortuous path, including changing the director. But it was all built on the fact that there was a passion about the idea. And once you have the passion about the idea, you have something to build on. For our audience listening to this, Obviously, most people aren't in creative spaces, nothing like Pixar. Very few people in the world have that experience. But this idea of honoring, supporting, and even implementing something that you think your employees are passionate about, what's the takeaway? What would you tell our audience to take from your experience? Well, I think in any company, and I've only been in a small number of companies, but Basically, the people want to make a difference in the world. So it might be in engineering or products, or they see problems in the world, but they're doing something in their company for other people. That's what their companies are for, is to do something for people. And if you make the assumption, which you think you should do, that people are well-intentioned, that's incredible strength and an asset for any company. I don't want to use the word asset there, but... It's like a strength to build on is a desire of people to make a difference in the world, regardless of the company you're in. And it's hard for some companies to actually do that because they might think purely in terms of like return on investment or various things like that. But it's like then ignoring the great capability people can bring to a job. And if you're not letting that come out, you're actually sort of turning them into cocks. Killing their spirit. Yeah. And people are not cocks. Regardless of how they treat people, they're not cogs. They're people with their aspirations and their own values. And like in any company, why do they come? Well, there's a variety of legitimate reasons. We do have to support our families or ourselves. And there's some people for whom their main driving thing is just to have a great family life. There are some who want to solve world problems. There are some that actually want to have this great relationship with people at work. There's a whole variety of things, all of which are valid. And it's important to understand and value all of what they do and to think of them as human beings with aspirations and goals in their life, regardless of what it is. It's fantastic. And it's no surprise that your company is as successful as it's been with that kind of thinking, because in my vernacular, people can feel that. And when you go to work and you feel that, hey, This is a company that is honoring my entire being. Very rare in business, very rare in any workplace, but when people experience it, they know it. And I think it's like spiritual fireworks going off. In your book, one of the, there's a couple themes that really come through for me, but one is you use this word flourishing a lot. Human flourishing needs to be an essential outcome for your leadership. That's essentially what you said. And I I was really looking forward to asking you, why do you believe this? And what was your methodology for ensuring that your employees thrived? 
despite the fact, like all of us, that people have highly demanding jobs, like they have to do work and they have to meet goals and deadlines and all of that? Well, on the flourishing part, one is I grew up in an environment where I would say that everybody was supporting and valuing. We went into the school system. Well, why are the teachers there? They're to help the students grow. Now, were all the teachers great? No, one was terrible. But I have to say, as a whole, the teachers were there for very good reasons. And why do people go into medicine? They want to help people. And I benefited from that. It was great. So if that worked in terms of the environment as I grew up, then what was my role in the world? Because it wasn't just about even doing their research. And I found the research idea exciting and solving the problems exciting. But that really isn't all of life. There are a lot of parts of life that are very important. And we could all say that our family is important. But the question is, well, how do we spend our time and how do we treat people? And in companies, and here's actually a fairly common thing. I mean, it's always an issue even at Pixar. And that is, let's suppose you would agree that you have three goals, all of which are of equal importance. So it's not that I would say there's necessarily hierarchy, but they're like three things that are important for any good group. One of them is that you're producing a very good product. The second one is that you do it on time and on budget. And the third is that you take care of the careers of the people. So you could agree among very good managers that they're all of equal importance and you have to do them. But there's a problem, and the problem is that two of these things are moderately easy to measure. You can measure how you're doing with the budget and the time. You roughly got an idea of how good your product is as you're designing or building it. But it's pretty hard to determine how well you're doing at helping people flourish and grow. So just by virtue of the fact that it's hard to measure, it almost always ends up behind the others because it's not easy to measure. So that's a trap that anybody can fall into, even though they are saying they've got the values of their importance of them, the actual actions make it so that we don't always treat people in the right way. This is one of the reasons why it's really hard. And if it's really hard, that means we have to pay a lot of attention to how we keep that value, that actual value in place when we're making our decisions about how we treat people. How did you stay vigilant? Well, I always believe that you need to, on a regular basis, meet with people, check in, and when you find a problem arise, then address it. And at Pixar, for instance, while I'm a, a strong believer in not having a class structure in there, and we worked very hard to make sure that the engineers and the artists all viewed each other as peers, there were three times in the history of Pixar when sort of a, a group began to feel like they were second class. And this was happening even though I was looking for it and I was missing it. And there are reasons why this happens. But when we found out that some group felt this way, then we could address it. But sometimes the problem was hidden because the whole group was not saying what they thought because they didn't feel like it was appropriate or they didn't look like they were out of place. And then at some point, if it's not addressed, then it starts to bubble out in negative ways. Well, that's a thing that happens even in well-functioning companies. Certainly was happening to us. So we would each time have to address it in a different way. Why were we missing it? What was wrong? What do we do to fix it? Wow. 
you just seem to have adopted, adapted, or instinctively approached leadership with being humane. That's the best way that I can express it. Like you, you're intentionally a humane leader. And clearly that benefited you from a creativity standpoint. So you've identified these three little boxes here and with this one being the one that gets lost most of the time because you can't measure it, but you made it an intentional part of how you led. Were there any downsides to that? Or on the other side of it, was it a catalyst for something exponential in terms of performance? Well, in terms of the downside is there wasn't a downside in doing it. The difficulty was sometimes it was hard to do. And if you didn't do it, the expectations of people were that you are going to do it. And so they might get disillusioned because you didn't meet their expectations. But all it really means is we didn't do the right job or we kind of missed the thing. That's on us. It's not on anybody else. So I think the answer is that there isn't really a downside. And this is in the context of saying that it is pretty hard to do. I do know the pressures that get in the way, and sometimes the pressures to deliver something good on time makes people who have these values, but they also put the one off in terms of how they help people grow. And frankly, I would say in almost every case, if we pay attention to the long-term growth of people, that we win not just in the long-term, but we also win in the short term. And that's kind of the illusion that can get in the way is that somehow I can't afford to do it now because I'm too busy with the other stuff that I really am required to do to finish this project. And that's an illusion that, in fact, people will arise to the challenge in the short term and they understand the pressures that they're under and given the chance, they will grow. And that is not a high-risk proposition. It's actually a very low risk proposition. If you're on a project and it's very difficult to get it done and your pressure is to have only the experienced people working on it. And the reason you don't give a chance to the, the less experienced people is that they don't know enough to do the job under the pressures and the risks that's there. And therefore, their desire is to have only the experienced people on the project. And what this is saying is that if you give the chance to somebody who hasn't done the job before, they will actually grow very quickly into it. It's a different thing, but it's saying how fast can people grow when you don't know if they can do it? And our experience is that almost all of them do it very quickly. Thank you for clarifying that. And what you just said is something that I think we we don't realize. We think that the growth is linear. And so if you put somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience on a project, they're going to slow things down because they don't have the expertise to do the job. And then everybody else has to spend time either correcting their work or showing them what to do. But you're saying that people actually rise to the occasion. Is that just in a creative environment? Or do you think that that's true of all people when we give them the opportunity? Oh, I think that's a general case. And the difficulty from a management point of view is they're nervous because of the pressure they're under to take a risk on somebody that hasn't done the job before. But it's also true for taking new approaches to solving a problem, mm -hmm. is that people become conservative because under pressure, they don't want to commit to a different path. 
And the realization should be that, number one, if you've started down a path, like a new way of doing things or bringing in somebody to do something that hasn't done before, if it doesn't work out, you know pretty quickly and then you can adapt or you can change to it. So the actual risk isn't very high, but if you give a chance to somebody, then 95% of the time they will grow quickly into the job. So if you were think of it in terms of risk, you'd say, well, it's like a 5% risk. Well, compared to the other risks, that's kind of in the noise level. Yeah. Likewise, if you're thinking about a new way of doing something, because people become conservative and they want to stay with what's known to work, the only reason you would try something new is because people who have been doing this job are suggesting something new. So it's not like it's just a wild-ass idea that's coming out. It's coming from people who have experience. And if you try it and it doesn't work, then you go back to what you know works. But the actual cost of trying something new is very low, and the risk is very low. But people are afraid to take these kinds of risks. Yes, they are. The actual risk is very low, and the potential upside, that is what you get from it in terms of what people do and the way they can do, is enormous. But it's hidden. It's like a lot of things. You can't really see it. So you tend to go with the things that you've seen in the past, and the things that you've seen in the past that do work, actually kind of getting in the way of saying, oh, I can try something new or I can try somebody new. And the likelihood of it working out is actually pretty high. It's just that I'm not guaranteed that it's always going to work. It's not 100%, but then nothing in life is 100%. Correct. (laughs) Absolutely. Took the words out of my mouth. That's really insightful what you've just shared. So thank you. I want to ask you a few questions about your relationship with Steve Jobs. I don't think there were very many people who worked with him any longer than you did. But before I do, I have one question, because I've now seen several of the Pixar movies, and they're all just extraordinarily wonderful. And the question is, when you're making them, you started down this road, and then I didn't pin you down, and I want to do it now. Did you have a experience that you want? audiences to have every time in your movies? And I may be tipping my hand here, but what's the role of love in your movies? Well, I mean, to be honest, we were lucky in the sense that our first group of the creative filmmakers consisted of five rather remarkable people. And they wanted to make a different kind of movie. And this was Andrew Stanton and John Lasseter, Pete Docter, Lee Ockridge, and Joe Ramp. And there was something special in the way that they worked together. And there was love between them. There was also an intensity, but the intensity was on the film. So they would have very vigorous discussions. But when you're in there, it was like, this is pretty incredible because there's a great intensity. But at the same time, the intensity is focused on the problem with none of it being about I'm right and you're wrong. That was never in the room. And that became a basis for how we began to think about things. So over the years, that process developed and grew as people came and were added to it. And ultimately, we ended up with something called a brain trust. But everything about this group was helping and supporting each other. So it grew out of that. That was the foundation point. Did that happen naturally? Like, did these guys just do this naturally or 
Was there some magic wand that, you know, in other words, was it your influence? How did that happen within your culture? Well, the original culture they came out of because we were this little company, we were selling software and we were trying to make commercials. And we finally got our chance to make a film because uh, Disney wanted us to make what they thought was a boutique film. (laughs) And we ended up with a contract, but we already had a relationship within the company one in which we paid attention to the culture, which included to ensure that the technical people and the creative people thought of each other as peers. So from a cultural point of view, it was this, I'd say, deep cross-respect across everybody in the company. Mm-hmm. And like, so this was a foundation. And with this foundation in place, this was the group then that came up with the idea for Toy Story. And frankly, it started from a short film we had made very early on called Tin Toy. And then we were going to make a half hour special based on these toys. And then uh, I was approached by Disney to make an animated feature film. And I said, well, we're not quite ready yet. We want to do a half hour special first. And the president of Disney Animation said, I think do a half hour. You can do 75 minutes. So, yeah, you're right. So we had entered into a relationship with them to make this film. And this was the group to do it. And they started off with their original concept, but it wasn't working. And the fact that it didn't work was, and having to deal with that was part of the group solving the problems. We also had pushback from Disney about what we were doing, how we were doing it. So there was this interesting phenomenon of a group trying to solve a problem and an external force challenging them in ways that we value. There were certain things we didn't like about it, but at the same time, it was of great value to have somebody from the outside who wanted us to succeed and didn't agree with us. So we valued that. So there was this complex dynamic, but the result was this group solving a problem under a crisis situation, and our company depended upon them doing that. And then when it came to the making of it, the people who aren't known from the outside because they're the technical group put everything into this heart and soul in order to get this film made. And the wonderful thing about this was when the movie came out, it's our first feature film, the reviews most spent one or two lines about the fact that it was done on a computer and the rest were about the movie. And of course, for creative people, that was great. But also for the technical people, that was great because they did not want the technology to be the focal point. That would have meant they failed instead of supporting a real creative story. So this is part of this underlying culture as we move forward. And as we progressed, we made some mistakes. And some of those mistakes, in terms of the way we address them, turned out not to be foundational for the way we thought about the process. But I would say the biggest foundational things took place through the first three or four movies And with each one of those, it's like, okay, how do we grow? How do we learn? How do we change? In this period in which the brain trust arose, which actually was put together, it was named by Andrew Stanton, but it was put together to actually replace what Disney was doing as Disney was starting to not be as effective with us. And then it turns out the brain trust was not a good external force because they were too much inside. But as a group, it was extremely effective. But you, you've you said some things here that I want to pin down here, which is an orientation to grow, to learn, and to change. Start there. 
And then the other one is, is that you've got these external forces, i.e., uh, we'll give an example of Disney. So Disney is your partner. You guys are working on your very first film and they're coming out and saying, we don't like this or we're unsure about this. And your team is looking at that and saying, we're not going to take this as a threat or an annoyance. We're going to approach this from the mindset that they want the best for us and we can learn from whatever they're telling us. These are really advanced kinds of approaches to life, especially creative life. You know, you create something and then somebody goes, well, I'm not so sure. That hurts. So what was the seed of that before we move on? Well, in terms of the external pushback, at some point, uh, Tom Schumacher was down at Disney. He was made the president. And uh, he was a great external force. And he just pushed back on stuff that we're doing. But but we knew that he cared about what we did. Mm. And we valued that, that external force. And then we realized, because Tom was actually being promoted to being over the uh, in uh, New York City, or the musical theater there. And uh, so well, who's going to do that? So we thought, well, let's do it ourselves with the Brain Trust. Well, that group was pretty special, but it wasn't actually unbiased anymore. It wasn't unbiased like Tom Schumacher was. So, but on the other hand, we recognized, wow, this is an incredibly powerful way of solving problems. So that powerful group turned them into something that was different, but we still needed the external force. And the external force ended up being Steve Jobs. And Steve never came to a brain trust meeting because Steve understood that there were some rules for the brain trust meeting. And one of them was that in that meeting, which is a problem solving meeting, is nobody was to have power over the director of the film. So we had to remove power from the room. And the people who did have power were supposed to basically shut up for the first 10 to 15 minutes. Because a powerful voice starting the meeting is setting the tone. So they needed to enter the discussion rather than set the tone for the discussion. And Steve understood, because I told him, that if he were in the meeting, it's actually not possible for Steve to not influence the room. <laughs> right. And then he just, he just acknowledged that. But at this point, we're a public company. So he would see them at the board of director meetings. And what he would do is the night before he's going to see it, he'd call me in the morning and he'd say, how is it going? And sometimes I'd say, I was really going great. That's it. And other times I would say, there's a problem. But I never told him what the problem was. and I never told him how to think. So at that point, knowing there's a problem, but not knowing what it is, he would watch the film and then he would come into the board of directors meeting with the director and he would start off by saying, I'm not a filmmaker, so you can ignore everything that I say. And then he would very carefully dissect what he saw as the problems. And uh, honestly, it was sort of like a gut punch sometimes to the directors. Now, I can tell you that because I'm in all of these meetings, that Steve never said anything or never gave a note about the film that had not been given by somebody else. Mm -hmm. But they learn sometimes, they learn how to ignore each other, but you couldn't ignore Steve. <laughs> so they would swear that Steve saw things that they never that they never heard before. But it was like, it was important, and they knew it was important to have somebody who wants you to succeed, but they're outside the process. 
Let me ask you a couple of questions about Steve Jobs. When Pixar's Northern California headquarters was built, he literally designed the place inside and out. And at the time, with an overriding goal of fostering community, connection, collaboration. So my question is because working from home is such an in incredibly topical issue right now. What do you think that his philosophy would be on remote working and what's yours? Well, I know that in the meetings that we have, and especially with problem solving meetings, is that you aren't just discussing something. There's always a different level of communication, which has to do with your body, the body language. And uh, there are those levels of communication which just cannot be done via telecommunication. You're seeing their face. You see a group of people. But that sort of channel of information cannot be done at all. And writing notes down the side of in the chat thing is not effective whatsoever. In fact, what it does is distracting to meetings. But in a meeting of people, sometimes somebody will go sort of like to the back of the room and they'll chat or they want to check out an idea. So they'll talk with somebody and they'll bring it back. And there's that other kind of thing goes on, which isn't happening over the telecommunication. And uh, when COVID hit, then there was already enough combination of people that had enough trust that they were able to go through it because they'd built that up. But over time, it can degrade, or if you bring in new people, they don't experience the building. So for me, there's just no question about it, is that you really want people there. And yes, we've got flexibility, and now we know what the limits are because we have this forced experiment, and you need flexibility, but you really want people there together, and you want the environment to be such that they want to be there. So I don't know because, I mean, Steve and I did not always agree. I know that he focused on making an environment of communication, and the building is designed so that everybody crosses at the center of the building. It's a very deliberate design, mm -hmm. and the Pixar building is the best working environment I have ever seen in my life. Wow. And it's built up so that people come together at the center so that our three screening rooms are at the center, the cafeteria, the mail room, the meetings, the restrooms. You need to cross all the time, and you always have these inadvertent encounters. They're really important, and it's not like you measure them, but when they happen... They have an impact and the energy is felt throughout the building, but you get it because you've got a good, strong center to work from. And Steve understood that very deeply. Clearly, he probably couldn't have imagined COVID and what was coming. He clearly wanted people to be together. But what's interesting is that you're reaffirming it in your own voice. And we're going to take a brief departure from this conversation and move into what we call the heartbeat round. So to help us learn a little bit more about you personally, I'm going to ask you several questions, but we want you to answer each of these instinctively and quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm game. Where you display your Oscars? In our family room. The Pixar movie character you love most. I can't separate the character out from the people that make them. So I don't actually have an answer because there isn't a character. There's a combination of the character with the director. Your favorite piece of non-advice 
In other words, advice that's so elementary or obvious, it only serves to annoy the person in need of it. Okay, the most annoying advice I've heard and useless is focus, focus, focus. <laughs> I was excited to hear your answer to that. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Learn to cook. Cultural value every organization should have. Caring. Amen. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Needing to be right. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. They're always greedy or self-centered people who derail the best of plans. Your synonym for the word heart. It's also caring. A leader of any era you hold in the highest regard. King Ashoka. King Ashoka is the one who united all of India about 250 BCE. But on doing that, he realized that he'd been corrupted and he'd been brutal. So with that recognition, he changed, he essentially converted to Buddhism, but he then put in place, and this is the important thing, the principles that he wanted religious tolerance between all the different groups. And he put in hospitals. He took this realization and turned it into the actions for the way he ran the empire. And I always thought it was great that this person, rather than sort of becoming negative about it, realized what had happened when he became in charge. A lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. For me, it's like the things that happened in my life that happened over my life were part of an ongoing journey. I don't know how to change the order of that journey. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? You're wrong half the time. And one subject you believe all managers today would be wise to bone up on? Well, basically, it's understanding human emotions and psychology. Love it. You're very concise with these, so thank you, and the very provocative answers. Thanks for going through this with me. My pleasure. <laughs> one more question about Steve Jobs. You know, we've all heard the stories that in the early stages of his career, at least, that he was impossible and dismissive and condescending and threatening and bullying. And so all boiled down, he didn't have a whole lot of empathy. But you saw him, and you write about this in your book, that you saw him evolve into someone who wasn't just patient and empathetic, that you think he actually became like a spiritual leader. And I find that really fascinating. So can you give us a summary of that? Well, the first thing to note is that books and movies and so forth tend to write about things that have got more dramatic. And so they tend to focus on the early part of his life. But he actually went through essentially the hero's journey where he was sort of removed from his kingdom because of his behavior. And we were with him at that time when he was still like that. But he went through that rather public and major failure. And then the first version of Pixar did not succeed. And the first version of Next actually didn't succeed. So he was learning from each of these failures because he's, he's actually brilliant. And I never thought that people could learn empathy in the way that he did. But he did. And by around the early 90s, he had made this transformation. And after that transformation, the people who were with him stayed with him for the rest of his life. There was how powerful it was. He just had a, a way of looking at the world in terms of change and acceptance. It was just pretty remarkable. It's hard to describe. And each one of us kind of had a different view of Steve. My way of interacting with him was quite different than other people's interactions. 
because I just realized that there are certain things I need to do to talk with Steve. And he appreciated that. And it was different than the way you work with other people. Also, frankly, on the, the board of directors of Pixar, there were two people who never argued with Steve and never pushed back. And he fired them from the board of directors because he said, if people only agree with me, they're of no value. <laughs> so and it's not something that people understand, really, is that he wanted people to push back, but they didn't understand his intensity. He had incredible intensity about what he was doing. But he also knew that if he was wrong, and it was shown he was wrong, he would switch quickly. He wasn't stubborn about being right. He was passionate about doing what he thought was the right thing. And as soon as it was shown that it was wrong, he would switch. That's a hard concept for people. It sure is. It's a hard behavior to learn. And in terms of the, of the question of the spirituality, I know that Steve was Zen, but he didn't talk much about it at work. I mean, his way of dealing with the world was just how he treated people. I heard that, and tell me if this is true, that he planned his own funeral in advance. So he knew who was coming. <laughs> like, very few people do this. But of course, sadly, he knew he was dying. So he planned it and he gave a gift to everybody. And so when you sat down, and I'm not sure if uh, I forget, but I think it was a secular setting where they had his ceremony. But there was a gift for everyone, and he gave everyone the autobiography of a yogi by Yogananda. Is that true? Um, I don't remember getting that book. I read the book, but I don't remember getting that book. The setting was remarkable because it was out in the open. It was in the middle of an orchard, actually. And uh, it was actually it was very emotional for the people who were there. In terms of a gift, I don't actually remember one. I, I remember my final conversation with him, and I knew a few things took place past then, but he certainly knew that when he was coming near the end of his life. You mentioned emotional. One of the things that you actually said in your book is that he put a premium, that's your word, on both logic and emotion. Can you give us an example of how that played out and why you think it's important? Well, the example for me was he really connected with the Pixar directors because he understood this principle which the Pixar directors had to bring, which is they are committed. That's, that's what was the passion part. They really wanted to do it. They committed to it. And then when it wasn't working, they would let go of what wasn't working and then move on to something different. And that's the way he treated things. Like he had this passion for it and he had people who would disagree with him. And at some point he would say, oh, you're right. And in the case of with the desktop computer, so they're in this business selling desktop computers and Steve, said to me at one time, he said, we're actually reaching the end of where we can go with that, which is a very rare thing for CEOs to do. And we have to move on to the next thing. He thought it was going to be the iPad. His engineers did not agree, and they convinced him to go with the iPhone. So the point was that he thought one thing, and when they didn't agree with him, then he changed. And likewise, as you would recall, when the iPhone first came out, the, the apps were closed. He wanted them to be closed because he wanted Apple to control them. But within three or four months, again, the engineering and the market deal convinced him that the apps needed to be open. So he changed his mind. And then they went and made this store, which came out the year after the first one came out. The concept is he can actually really believe something, he commits to it. And then 
when it's shown to be wrong, he just switches. And that's the thing that's hard to do. You say, I'm going to be passionate. I'm going to believe in it. I'm going to try to convince people. But I'm not really arguing against the person. And I'm not trying to prove that I'm right. I'm talking about the problem. And that concept of passion, at the same time being able to let go of the passion when it's not going anywhere, gets confused with, I'm right because I'm right. <laughs> and if I have to change my mind and it proved I was wrong, and therefore it's a diminishment of me to admit that I'm wrong. He didn't go down that path. Did people around him ultimately figure that out? Oh, yeah. After the people who are with him, that is the way they thought and the way they work. So they disagreed about a number of things, and they had a different way of doing it. And when I disagreed with Steve, and I disagreed fairly frequently, but I can't think as fast as he can, and I can't argue with, with him with his arguments. So if we disagreed, because he would think faster, and I couldn't come up with a response, I would just say, let me get back to you on it later. And then I might take a week to think of my next sentence, <laughs> which I'd give to him and then shoot it down immediately. So sometimes these conversations would go on for weeks and even occasionally on months. And there'd be roughly one of three outcomes. One of them was, I would realize that Steve was right. This is about a third of the time. I'd say, oh, you're right, I get it. And that was the end of it. And about a third of the time, he would just say, Oh, I see what you're saying. And that's the other discussion. And the other third of the time, it was, we didn't reach a conclusion. And I would just do what I wanted to do. And Steve was perfectly fine with that because we had discussed it. That's very, very intelligent navigation, I would say. And good advice for all of us in terms of just negotiating with our bosses. Yeah. And I was fortunate because my boss was smart. Being smart and articulate doesn't mean they're right. And so I never, ever confused the two. So it didn't matter where I was. Somebody could be having a powerful personality and they'd say things that are very articulate. I didn't mean they were right. <laughs> so some people try to sort of bull their way into it by the strength of their, their voice or their arguments and so forth. And so I, I don't care about that. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't mean anything. Like, what's the right thing and how do you get there? Well, Ed, we'll stop there. Let me just say on behalf of my audience, this was one, as I'm listening to you, that I'm standing outside of my body hoping that people will go back and listen a second time because I just think there's some, some deep ideas here about leadership that may or may not come out the first time around, but you've really shared some great insight, wonderful insight, and thank you so very much for joining us. It's really been my pleasure. If you find our podcast valuable, there are lots of ways you can support us. Tell all your friends about us. Buy some copies of my book, Lead from the Heart, for yourself and your team. Invite me to come speak at your organization. Any or all of these will help ensure our message is being spread wide and far and that we continue to have the worldwide influence on the evolution of workplace leadership we so greatly desire. I want to thank my team. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Young, Anna Boynton, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And great thanks go to you for listening. We produce the show, as you know, with love for you and hope you will keep tuning in. Our theme song is Take the A Train, a jazz standard written in 1939 by Billy Strayhorn that was the signature tune of the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Our version is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. 
And now I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.